Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. On the other line, a man whose heart is as huge as Carlos Correa's fiance's engagement ring. It's my fellow staff writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. I'm going to miss a lot of things about this baseball season. Uh, Chief among them is Jock Peterson's walk-up music getting stuck in my head because that (laughs) uh, Thunder by Imagine Dragons is an earworm. That song is a jam, my friend, Yeah, and I'm going to miss it dearly (laughs) if it ever gets out of my head. Yeah, well, we'll be back. Jock will be back. Baseball will be back. His walk-up music will be back. But we do have a long, cold gulf staring us in the face here. But we don't have to confront it yet. That will be the subject of maybe our next episode. On this one, we are going to talk about the World Series and your world champion, Houston Astros. The Astros won the World Series. Congratulations to them. Condolences to the Dodgers. We'll be discussing both of these teams at some length today, as well as the series itself. But we have finally come to the end. And I would say that the end disappointed a bit, maybe not for Astros fans, but I had my best series ever takes already chambered before this game and did not get to use them because this game seven was a bit of a letdown by the standards of what was an all-time great series before that. Yeah, our much celebrated and now partially public, it turns out, MLB Slack was was on fire for most of the series. And during game seven, everybody was just pissed off. Yeah. Part of that, I think, was after the Yuli Gurriel incident, the tenor of the room changed from more or less neutral to pro Dodgers. But we had seen two or three all-time classic games and a couple other really good games. And this one was over by the second inning. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was disappointing, you know, but I guess it just shows how spoiled we were by the the first six games of the series. Yeah, this game, as it turned out, was over in about two minutes. We didn't know it at the time, but yeah. the, the two runs that the Astros put up in the first were all they would end up needing. Yeah. The Astros took the lead for good four pitches into the game. <laughs> right. So that was not what we were hoping for, I would say. But I think there were moments here that we can talk about. And of course, we can talk about how the Astros got to this point and Unfortunately, you Darvish was the goat of this series, and I don't mean goat in the good way. If you look at championship win probability added in this series, that's a, a stat you can find on a site called the Baseball Gauge. I don't know what this number is, but it's made me <laughs> sad already. Yeah, well, how much each player's individual contribution just you know either helped or hindered his team's chances of winning the series, and. If you look at George Springer for the Astros, who homered and doubled in Game 7 to win the World Series MVP, he shows up as the 10th best series of all time, 10th best postseason series. That is pretty impressive. And on the other end of the scale, you have Hugh Darvish with the 10th worst series of all time by the same metric. And that's a shame because I think we all enjoy watching Hugh Darvish's work and enjoy him as a person. And he just didn't have it in either of his very brief starts in the series. And I don't know whether it had anything to do with the baseball that 
he had complained about that some other players had complained about feeling slick and being unable to throw sliders well. But he just from the start in each of these appearances didn't look like himself and was not able to throw strikes and was not getting swings and misses. And that was the case in game seven as well. He was a little hard done by by his defense, too, because I mean, that Mm -hmm. was Cody Bellinger should never have gone for that ball. I think Cody Bellinger probably thinks he's invincible at first base, just not only by virtue of of being a child, but also because of of the spectacular defense he's played over there. You know, that should have been Forsyth's ball. And then on the the grounder to Forsyth with Brian McCann on third, I mean, it looked like he had him out at the plate by a couple steps, but he Mm -hmm. turned around and and threw to first base, making Lance McCullers the first American League pitcher in nearly (laughs) a decade to drive in a run in the World Series. So that's exciting. Yes. I know how excited you were about that. Yeah, so it's unfortunate. And Darvish, of course, is heading into free agency. I don't think that two brief World Series starts is necessarily something that should affect how he does in free agency, but it's not the the taste that he wanted to leave potential suitors with, of course. The only reason it would bother me is it looks like during the postgame stuff, Alex Rodriguez was on the verge of getting Carlos Beltran to dish about Darvish tipping his pitches again. And if he can't fix that, that seems like a a long-term issue, but... Right, because this is not the first time that that has supposedly been an issue. Yeah, he got in trouble doing that earlier in the Mm -hmm. season. Yeah, Yeah. so that's something of a concern. But, I mean, as you chronicled in a post-game piece, the Dodgers had every opportunity to come back in this game, to win this game, to win this series. Do you want to just run down some of the the many ways not to torture Dodgers fans any further? (laughs) I was (laughs) talking to a Dodgers fan friend of mine, you... uh, he commented on the piece like this is something like this is not what I needed to to read right now. Like we are not yeah. doing this purposely to torture you. Like I've no. lived through a World Series loss. I know that's what it feels like right now. But mm-hmm. they handed a two run lead to I don't know the best closer in the National League. Some some would say the best closer in baseball mm-hmm. uh, in game two and couldn't convert it. They uh, spotted their. I mean they they had opportunities even though they fell fell down early in game three. Uh, they spotted uh, the best pitcher in baseball, a four-run lead, and in game five, and he couldn't hold it. They spotted him another three-run lead, and he couldn't hold it. And uh, yeah, and they had numerous opportunities. Like McCullers was there for the taking; mm-hmm. he just couldn't get couldn't get right-handed batters out. I mean, I wrote in the in my column that he had two pitches. He had that killer curveball down and into lefties, and he had the fastball, which just like took off out of his hand and went right into the right into the the jersey lettering in the right-handed uh, on right-handed hitters. You know, he hit half of the righties he faced in game mm-hmm. 7, which is just incredible. Almost as incredible as this Jeff Passan stat that McCullers became the first uh, starting pitcher in a World Series game 7 since Jack Morris in 1991 not to give up a run, which I find hilarious. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they had their opportunities. They had, you know, Jock Peterson grinding out with the bases loaded in in the first thing, Chris Taylor hit into what seemed like the 300th double play of the series for the Dodgers. So, mm-hmm. you know, this you know, they don't even need to get all the way back against McCullers. I think this is a completely different game if they head into the third inning down 5-3 or 5-2 even. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, it was it was there for them, but they just didn't pick it up. And I mean, that's 
there's no larger point to be made there, you know, not to say that the Dodgers are less clutch than the Astros or that this is some sort of uh, moral failing. But, you know, that's just how you decide series like this that end up being very close between two very good teams. Yeah, they were what one for 13 in this game with runners in scoring position. They stranded 10 runners, which, as our colleague Zach Cram pointed out in his postgame piece, was a record for a losing team in a regulation length were uh, game seven. So, um, I, you know, that was a heartbreaking way for the Dodgers to lose. And because they came so close, I, I think that has implications for the way we think about what a World Series win mean and what it means and what a World Series loss means and the significance of those things, which I, I think we'll get into shortly. But much of the discussion during the game and, and after the game from the second guessers, and to be fair, some first guessers in this case was about the Dodgers' decision not to use Clayton Kershaw, who ended up coming in in relief of Brandon Morrow, who had a, a brief appearance as well, and pitching four scoreless innings. And of course, the contrast to Darvish was strong. Kershaw looked good and I don't know whether this helps with his can't pitch in the postseason narrative at all. It kind of feels like because the Dodgers were down significantly when he entered this game, he just kind of wasn't going to get credit for anything here unless they actually came back to win. Or if, but, if you're Rhino headline, it's he only pitched well because the pressure was off him at that point. Yes, that too. So he was great. And because we went from Darvish allowing a bunch of runs to Kershaw allowing no runs, I think it was only natural for people to raise the question of how might this game have played out differently if Kershaw had started. And some people had suggested before the game. You're saying first guessers. like Yeah, yeah, I, I believe that it was written. I, Joe Sheehan certainly okay. wrote it in his newsletter. I think Dave Cameron may have mentioned it or, or Jeff Sullivan. So I saw it prior to the game. Basically, the point was that if Kershaw is going to pitch and you know he was going to pitch, he was always virtually guaranteed to pitch in this game no matter what the score was, then use him from the start because that way you guarantee that you're getting Kershaw at a moment that matters because not starting him, you run the risk of what happened happening. So basically by the time Kershaw was in, the game was out of hand and he couldn't really do anything except keep it where it was. If you start with him, then you get to throw him when it's still scoreless, when the Dodgers still have a good chance, when the top of the lineup is guaranteed to be up. And of course, you know, maybe it's his routine. He's used to starting. Of course, you could say that you would have had to bring you Darvish in in relief anyway, and he wouldn't have been used to that. So, Or you might have not used Darvish at all. You might have, mm -hmm. I don't know, Alex Wood probably had another inning and two thirds in him the way he was pitching. So maybe, you know, maybe that's not the best counter argument, but I'll, mm -hmm. I'll let you finish. And then I have thoughts on this. Yeah. I'm sure it's going to shock you. Yeah, I, I have some thoughts on this too, but that was the rationale, basically, that if you're going to use Kershaw, and they always were, then the most 
effective way to deploy him or, or guarantee that his appearance matters would be to start the game with him and see how long he can go. So give me your thoughts. So uh, just before we started recording, I saw Marcus Stroman tweeting at a couple of the, the Astros. And that brought me back to the mind because he was a pitcher in the 2012 draft class. And because Carlos Craig, Corey Seager and Lance McCullers played a huge role in this postseason. And we saw Jose Barrios and and Byron Buxton and so on earlier, it brought me back into the mind of the how did Michael Waka fall to 18 in the 2012 draft takes from the <laughs> 2013 World Series. And that's my least favorite baseball take since I've started covering baseball on any sort of professional basis. You should have started Kershaw in game seven is up there, though, because first <laughs> of all, you don't trade for Darvish unless you're comfortable starting him in game seven. Like you don't give up Willie Calhoun for two months of a pitcher. who You're going to chicken out and not start in game seven. And he, you know, you could make the argument and I'm the biggest Lance McCullers fan on the planet. This side of Lance McCullers himself, Darvish probably outpitched McCullers just in terms of command of stuff like this. He was not outclassed by five runs in his brief involvement here. The other thing is what you said about how you want to get Kershaw in the game where you can put him into the game where where he can make an impact. That's a fair point. That's not how this argument gets couched most of the time. This argument gets couched in, oh, Sandy Koufax uh, started game game seven of the 1965 World Series on two days rest. And yeah, you know, that had no ill effects on his career long term. And we definitely use pitchers the same way now as we do in 1965. It's good to think it's good to know that some people's thinking hasn't evolved in the past 50 years. But you know what? If the people who manage the Dodgers have gotten smarter in the past 52 years. So it's not like that was a guarantee to work because guess who else right. started game seven of the World Series on two days rest two years later? Jim Lomborg. And we all remember the Red Sox winning game seven of the 1967 World Series, which is why nobody gave a shit when they won in 2004, right? Because this always works, bringing back your ace on two days rest to start. And so like this, this is just all post hoc reasoning because they knew that Kershaw was good. And the same people are saying, oh, why didn't you start Kershaw? We're piling soil on his grave two days before when he gave up six runs in game five like mm -hmm. are you really gonna bench darvish on his turn to, on his turn to pitch on full rest for kershaw on two days rest after he gave up six runs like that's really right. the hill you want to die on so mm -hmm. like there was no guarantee he was gonna pitch that well yeah. and the only reason you can make this take is looking back on it knowing that kershaw was gonna throw those knowing that kershaw's appearance was gonna go as well as it possibly could have and mm -hmm. that darvish's appearance was gonna go as poorly as it possibly could have if there's one thing that that you could take away from this playoffs it's that you can't really predict it like you can give yourself a chance by getting better starting pitchers. And how many of the best pitchers in baseball got their tits lit this postseason? Because it happened to Kluber, it happened to Scherzer, it happened to Kershaw, it happened to Darvish. Like mm -hmm. who else do you you know, it Keigel got knocked around a couple times. The yep. only guy Verlander's probably the only guy who didn't have it an out and out bad inning who you'd find on a Cy Young ballot. So the level of confidence with which people it, it, and that's why I say that's why I was surprised to see you or to hear you say that you found this take before the game, because mm -hmm. it's the it's only the kind of take that like if if you're so certain this could have happened, like you should be using your time machine for better shit than this <laughs> instead of going going back and forth like it, like if, if you're going to go back and start Clayton Kershaw in game seven of the World Series, go kill baby Hitler first. This is a better <laughs> use of of everybody's time than discussing this outrageous take. So 
So let's discuss this outrageous take. What do you think, Ben? <laughs> no, I'm I'm mostly with you. I think, first of all, you can't just assume that if Kershaw had started the game, he would have gone four scoreless innings. I think it's a it's a different collection of hitters. It's a That's different... not how temporal mechanics works, Ben. <laughs> right. It's not. <laughs> it's a different feel for him. Who knows if the hitters are you know, approaching him differently if it's a scoreless game as opposed to when they're already winning 5 nothing. I just, I don't think it's fair, A, to say that even knowing what we know now, that he would have been just as effective as a starter in this game. And secondly, there's just no way that you would have forecasted this. Of course, he's Clayton Kershaw and he's really good, but he was also on two days rest and mm-hmm. pitching in relief. And there's a, a lot of uncertainty in that situation. There are um, big error bars here. And I certainly didn't expect Kershaw to go four innings. That's the other thing. Yeah. I don't know if anyone expected him to go four innings. Now, maybe you could say the the Dodgers know him better than we do and they knew he'd go four innings, but I doubt it. I think, you know, you couldn't safely assume more than an inning or two or maybe three from Kershaw here. And if he goes two innings, let's say, instead of four, then you're probably in a situation where you have to use Darvish anyway, or at least they'd certainly be tempted to. And then who knows, maybe he blows up anyway and it doesn't end up mattering. So I I think it's definitely, you know, a bit of a stretch to say that it was a mistake that Dave Roberts should regret this. I think the way it played out obviously made it look like the alternative would have been better, but I just don't think we can actually say that. I, I don't blame Roberts or the Dodgers no. for doing something different than they did. And, you know, Roberts, Roberts hung himself out there a couple times, you know, pulling Rich Hill early in game two, like, but at the same time, like, I, I don't have a particular issue with anything that he did. I guess the only exception is, and we talked about this, stretching out the bullpen to, to kind of chase game three. But even that, even if I don't necessarily agree with that, that's a hundred percent defensible position. And mm-hmm. yeah, like I'm shocked that Kershaw, like I, I reckon, you know, he's a 29 year old pitcher. He's gotten paid already. He's, you know, if there is any time you're ever going to push yourself to the ragged edge, this is it. But even so like four strong innings was, I expected, I think the original plan was something like get Darvish through the order twice and then kind of white knuckle through the middle with Mora Wood and Watson and give the last three innings to to you know to split between Kershaw and Jansen in in some capacity. I think that plan is perfectly fine. Like I you know, mm-hmm. I could have expected somewhere between three and six outs from Kershaw, but certainly not four innings like this. Like no. yeah, that's 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 almost it's it feels weird to to say you're surprised by Clayton Kershaw pitching scoreless innings, but in this situation, <laughs> yeah. you know, considering what happened the last time he he was out there, that's almost as surprising as Darvish giving up five runs in an inning in two thirds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. So I, I mean, I think it was on the whole a, a pretty well managed series. I mean, there are definitely moves on both sides that you could quibble with, but that is not this series legacy there's no one move that stands out as this was when the manager lost the game this was all decided by the players and some were great and some were bad and and that's how i prefer it and and that's yeah that's the way you want it to be yeah Mm -hmm. and this was a difficult series to manage too because we're talking about the astros bullpen implosion you know roberts trying to find the right end of his platoon and which of his or at second base and which of his uh which of his outfielders he wanted to use in which order you know in which situation so you know this this was a very difficult series to manage and i think you know aj hinch and dave roberts i don't know like 
like if Dave Roberts is going to is going to lose sleep over this just because he lost. But, you know, mm-hmm. he has no reason to blame himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no way not to think about what might have been. Sure. And uh, I don't blame anyone for that. But I think, you know, to have any sort of certainty about this being a mistake, I think, is a bit too much. So. Yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, for the most part, a, a well-played World Series, and it was it lived up to the billing. I mean, this was the two, if not the two best teams in baseball, probably the best and, I don't know, the third best, something like that. And they played like that, and they went to seven games, and a lot of those games were extremely memorable and all-time classics, and the stars of the series, for the most part, were big stars and guys who are going to be stars for years to come. And we're we're lucky. We're spoiled. We've been spoiled really back-to-back Octobers, not only with the World Series matchups that we got, but how good those series were. And it's a huge, you know, win and it's a huge landmark for for the Astros, of course, who've won their first World Series here. And maybe we can talk a bit about how they were built and how they set up for the future. And that's kind of what I focused on in my post recap piece. And this is the second straight World Series that we've seen a team that tanked essentially win. First, it was the Cubs. Then it was the Astros who tanked before it was cool to tank. They were really you invoked the, Sam Hankey in your story. I did. Yeah, because I keep seeing the Sixers get credit for pioneering this strategy. And in the NBA, sure, maybe they did and maybe they took it further in some ways than the Astros did, but the Astros started this effort way before the Sixers did. Jeff Luna was hired 18 months before Hinky was hired. So the Astros were kind of out on an island when they started putting this plan into place and when they started, you know, temporarily not trying to win, let's put it, in order to get high draft picks and stockpile prospects. And they took a lot of abuse at the time. I mean, I think there were plenty of people who said, hey, this is smart. It's maybe not the greatest look for the sport that it is smart, but it is. And you can't really blame the Astros for taking advantage of the system. And I think the point I tried to make in my piece since the 2014 Sports Illustrated prediction was such a big storyline in this series. And we've all seen the cover dozens of times and kudos to SI on on getting that call right. But I think that it almost seems as if this was inevitable in retrospect because of the tanking process and because of that cover. And I mean, at the time, of course, we knew the Astros were going to be good in a few years. You could see that team already kind of coming together. I mean, the following season, they won a wild card, which was something of a surprise at the time, but the pieces were already in place. And So I I think we knew that things would look up for them down the road, but to predict a World Series is just something that really you should never do for any team. That's why I weasel my way out of predictions every year. Weasel is the right word, isn't it? (laughs) Every team is an underdog when it comes to the World Series. There's no likely winner at some points in the past in baseball. There were. There were years where, what, the Yankees won 14 out of 16 pennants and, you know, teams won back-to-back-to-back world championships. And we're not seeing that anymore. And I don't know whether we will see that. And if we do see that, 
I think it will be more a reflection of the fact that a team was good and also got lucky and had a lot of things go its way more so than this team just outclassed or outspent everyone because the way that baseball works now I said that it's beyond dynasties in my piece. And what I meant by that is, hey, we've got 30 teams. We've got three playoff rounds plus the wild card game. We've got revenue sharing. We've got luxury tax. We've got spending caps and limits in the amateur market, the international market. Every team is smart and is using stats and scouting in ways that would have gotten it books written about it a decade ago. And there just isn't really a a lot of opportunity here or teams just sort of phoning it in and and giving away wins unless it's with an eye toward the future. And so I think it's harder than ever now to, you know, predict that a team will win and certainly to predict that a team that just won will be back. And so the Astros deserve a lot of praise and credit for the plan they designed, which was bold and innovative at the time and which worked. But It was never inevitable that it was going to work. I think the best you can hope for is that you build a good team that gets to the playoffs consistently. You want a shot, yeah. Right, yeah, and and they've done that. And we'll we'll talk about the Dodgers shortly too because they've done that also and it just hasn't worked out for them. So the Astros are, are set up. They are a great team. They're a fun team. They are the envy of just about every other organization and the amount of talent that they have and cost-controlled players just locked up long-term, but there's no guarantee that they'll be back here. We were saying the same thing about the Cubs starting a dynasty last year, and they had to fight and scrap all season to make the playoffs against the Brewers, a team that no one saw coming. And of course, they were knocked out of the playoffs, and the Astros last year didn't build on their wild card win. They missed the playoffs when a lot of people were expecting them to win a division title. Or if you take a team like the Nationals that's been good every year for several years now and has still yet to win a playoff series with this group of players. So there are no guarantees. And I think you just have to savor each title even more because of that. Even if there was a plan in place, it still took a lot of things going right that no one ever predicted. And it took a lot of lucky breaks and it took the Dodgers stranding 10 runners in this game which on a different day maybe they drive some of those guys in and and this game goes a different way yeah i think in this age of 30 teams and multiple playoff rounds and you know sort of more financial parity between teams even if the way that major league baseball has gone about it isn't like the greatest from a social justice standpoint (laughs) um it's good for it's good for the game of baseball and it's forces us to reevaluate like the what dynasty means and you know there's a an ongoing conversation about this with the Chicago Blackhawks in hockey, for instance, like what is, you know, dynasty used to mean you win four Stanley cups in a row. And now the, the Hawks win like three and five years, I think it was. And that counts as a dynasty because there's a salary cap now. And there's, a, you mm-hmm. know, the, the draft is, uh, is different now. So it, those sort of things make it tough to build sustain sustained success throughout all sports. And, yeah, like you said, there's uh, look no further than the Dodgers or the Nationals for yeah. for evidence that there's no guarantees. I do think that you know the Astros are sort of a unique example in terms of tanking because they tanked harder, but they also kind of had fewer options. And this is where yeah. the Sixers parallel comes in. Like you know, both teams went into the tank after new ownership groups when there was just nothing. You know, there was no talent at the major league level. There was relatively little uh, salary flexibility. There was no farm system, no assets, so to speak, to to build from. So. 
why not just burn it all down to the ground? Because you're not going anywhere anyway. Like, I think going the 100 loss route, as long as they did, might have been the fastest way back to to yeah. contention, as weird as that sounds to, let's say, rather than try to plug the, you know, plug the holes every so often. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because that sort of worked with the 2013 Red Sox, but it's not a sustainable uh, model for winning. And now, you know, now they've got this young, likable, uh, exciting team that won 101 games in the world series and is going to be back stronger than ever next year. And they've got, you know, if they ever start, I think trading for Verlander was a start to this, but if they ever start spending to the potential of their market, they could be just dominant. Like they could reel off that kind of dynastic run, at least in the American league West, the way the rest of the division's going. Yeah. So, you know, it's not the, the hard tank is, you know, I say this is as a process truster, like the hard tank is not the solution for everybody, but it's a, uh, it's, but for some teams in certain situations, it is the fastest and most sustainable road back to like actually being interesting. And as someone mm-hmm. who's rooted for a team that's gone in the tank, like mediocrity is boring. Like it's at some point losing every single day starts to wear on you, but like, you know, but you eventually shift your focus as a fan from the major league team to the minor league team or, or the draft in basketball's case, or, you know, what's to come. You get excited about the future. Um, and eventually you have to deliver on that promise the way the Astros did or the way that the Sixers, I hope are, are currently doing that. But, you know, there's a limit to, to how much trust you, you know, how much leash you get depending on how much trust you build with, with ownership and with the fans, and with the local media. But yeah. you know, this is, this is evidence that, I think that, you know, it's not like it's not like building through the draft is any sort of novel, uh, you know, novel team building strategy. Like you hear there's been so much like crowing about analytics because our friends who used to work for BP all work in the Astros front office now, mm-hmm. like crowing about this being a World Series for analytics in the 2010s is like, you know, yeah, watching the <laughs> every World like, Series is that right. Yeah. Like watching the 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 nineteen thirty four World Series and think you know fifteen years after Babe Ruth and like pulling on your cigar and saying ah yes home runs <laughs> <Right>. offense <laughs> yeah. wow what an innovative solution to baseball that was like yeah yeah everybody's doing that now everybody's smart and you you know it just it's there's a lot of luck there's a lot of timing there's a lot of just very small things in the margins that that decide who you know, who survives and who winds up being a, you know, being an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's still something of a negative connotation to tanking and the word tanking. I think the Astros themselves would not want to use that word in describing what they did, even if we all, I think, understand the strategy. And of course, they had some issues with their RSN in those years and actually getting that money. And they may not have had all that much to to spend at the time anyway. But I think that there's no need to really shrink from that word anymore. I mean, maybe on a a league level, you can look and say, well, do we want conditions that encourage teams to do this? Is this the best thing for baseball? And frankly, I don't think it matters all that much. I think we've had a few years here where some teams are, are tanking at any given time, and I don't think it's made the overall product less compelling. And if anything, if it gets these teams back to contention more quickly, and if it seems as if there's a plan. I mean, there have always been bad teams and losing teams that had no chance to win, but 
often they have no chance to win three years out either. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's different, at least if your team is terrible, but you know that there's a process here to use that overused word. And you can look ahead and say in three years, they'll be contending for a World Series, then that makes it much more palatable. So I don't know that a team needs to shrink away from using the T word. I think the Astros have proved that it was smart and you know, what was smart several years ago may not be as smart now in in some ways. I mean, once every team does this, and certainly there have already been copycats and teams that have looked at the Astros example and said, this makes sense. This is smart. We're going to do something like this too. Not every team is going to end up winning the World Series on the other side of the valley that they had the way that the Cubs did and the Astros did. Eventually, there's going to be a team that does the tear down and rebuild and the rebuild just doesn't go that great. And maybe they never even make it back to the playoffs or if they make it back to the playoffs, they don't build a great team or if they build a great team, they get unlucky and they don't actually win a world series with it. That's going to happen, especially when you have a lot of teams tanking at the same time. Obviously they can't all come out of it on the other side, being the best team in baseball. So I think we have to get used to that. That's a really important point too. That's something that like when Theo Epstein led the Red Sox to the world series in 04, you know, the other 29 teams said, ah, we got to get us one of those. We ought to get us one of those Ivy league frat boys. And now every team has an Ivy league frat boys as a general manager. And now there's no advantage to be clean. So by the time a strategy or, uh, you know, hiring policy or, or whatever innovation led the Red Sox to the world series, led the Cubs to the World Series last year, led the the Astros to the World Series this year. By the time that filters out into the the point where it's getting talked about on the Fox pregame show, like it's over. There's no like we're on mm-hmm. to the next thing. And that's like you can't, you know, it's the the Ocean's Eleven thing. You can't do the old gag. You need to go on, find the next gag. Mm-hmm. So it's that's going to be the real challenge. And I think there's always going to be some, you know, building through the draft, building from the farm system has been around since Branch Ricky. So like that's there's never going to be a bad time to to invest in your own scouting and player development. Yeah. But this is not the silver bullet. It, it can't be the silver bullet it once was because other teams are starting to try this now. So mm-hmm. there's not going to be, you know, there's and and as soon as it. Uh, reaches a public con- consciousness, there starts to be a stigma against it too. Mm-hmm. So the pitfall pitfalls are greater, the rewards are lesser. You got to find the next thing, and maybe you know for the Dodgers, the next thing is just spending a ton of money on on players. So yeah, right, yeah. So I want to say one more thing about the Astros, and also we want to get into the Dodgers, but let's take a quick break. Hear from our sponsor. We'll be back in just a minute. Let me tell you about this amazing hotel booking app, Hotel Tonight. Basically, Hotel Tonight teams up with great hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, which means there are always incredible deals available. These aren't last resort places. They're cool, top-rated hotels you actually want to stay in. Not to mention, with a ton of awesome partner hotels in so many different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. So whether I want to spend the weekend away on a whim or book myself a staycation at a cool local place, Hotel Tonight is helping me be just a little more spontaneous, not something I'm known for. If you're the type who likes to plan a head and have things locked down, you can actually book a room in advance with Hotel Tonight. Up to seven days in advance everywhere, and up to 100 days in advance in certain major cities. So whether you need a room for tonight, tomorrow, or beyond, you 
definitely want to download the Hotel Tonight app. You want to get to Houston in time for that World Series parade? Want to schedule your trip to the winter meetings? You're going to need Hotel Tonight. And you can book even in advance, so it's not just for last-minute getaways. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So see for yourself. Download the Hotel Tonight app now. So we discussed why conditions in in baseball today are lined up against any team repeating. You certainly can't survey next season and say, oh, the Astros will definitely be back. But that said, they are set up. I mean, there's no reason why this team should not be contending, should not be back in the playoffs for years to come. They just have an incredibly enviable talent base here. And I mentioned in my article, there's this projection system, player evaluation system called NAFI. It's named after Navy Perez. It was built by some former MLB employees, and it is licensed to, to major league teams. What a gigantic <laughs> insult that has to be to have your to have a right. stat named after you. Because like between this and Bill Picota, like Yeah, it's not a great sign for you usually. You'd you'd think it'd be the opposite. You'd think the best players would have stats named after them. I'm imagining like like Kevin Seitzer <laughs> getting a, a projection system named after him like looking at it thinking, huh, I thought I was better than this. Yeah. Right. Anyway, this system is is not public. It's it's licensed to teams. They don't give everything away, but they do uh, share some tidbits with writers for, uh, from time to time. And yeah, the the public version's named after Davy Cruz. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm uh, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> so they project basically the the value that every organization has under team control, just based on how good the players are, what their contracts are, what they're likely to do in the future. This is the entire organization, top to bottom, majors and minors. And the Astros, just in terms of the value that they have locked up in their players, just dwarfs any other team. And the exact figures are maybe not that important, but it's $244 million in value that they have locked up that they lead any other team by. And at least by their metrics, the Indians are second, the Dodgers are third. Again, we'll get to the Dodgers in just a second. But that's a very sizable lead, and you can see why. And a lot of the Astros' value there is homegrown guys, draftees, international free agents, and the, it's just concentrated in really the the quartet that we saw star in the series in this postseason all season long: Springer and Correa and Altuve and Bregman. These guys are all great and all young and all signed to reasonable deals or still making the league minimum in some cases. And that's just a great foundation for a team, which is not to discount the contributions that they got from veterans this year. And, you know, it was nice to see Carlos Beltran finally win his World Series. And obviously the acquisition of Justin Verlander had a lot to do with this win and Guriel, what he did during the postseason and and you know regular season on the field, and McCann, and on and on. There were thirty somethings who made major contributions this year. Josh Reddick too, for all the times that he has not come up all that big in the clutch for whatever reason. But I think that just with all the young twenty somethings that are signed for years and years and years to come, I mean, they're 
really no important free agents on this team. It's like four guys from the World Series roster and all sort of supporting casts mm-hmm. like Liriano and Gregerson and, and guys like that who, you know, if guys they all- Guys they probably want off the books anyway. Yeah, maybe in some cases. If they leave, it's certainly not a blow to the team. And as you mentioned, their payroll, I think, ranked 17th this year. They have room to spend, and that's even before accounting for the revenue rise that they're going to be in line here with the, the post-World Series bump that teams typically get. So the future is extremely bright, which- guarantees nothing, but at least should, in theory, ensure that they get more cracks at this thing, which is all that a team can really do. Yeah, next year is when they're going to have to start making some decisions because that's when Marwin Gonzalez and Charlie Morton and Dallas Keuchel uh, are all due to hit free agency. And, you know, I don't know that there's any an easy decision uh, for any of those guys. And then Verlander the year after that, and you get guys starting, you know, Springer sort of playing his way through arbitration. I don't know if there's... Uh, um, an extension on on the table for him or Correa or Bregman, who's going to hit arbitration in a couple of years. So it, this team's going to get more expensive, but the farm systems, you know, as, as much as they've dipped into to go get Ken Giles and Verlander and uh, McCann, it's mm-hmm. still pretty strong. Like they, you know, still yep. got, you know, still got Forrest Whitley. They still got Kyle Tucker. Um, they've got the assets to go go out and replace Keuchel, you know, or whoever they let walk in free agency should should the need arise, mm-hmm. uh, or they've got the player, you know, the player's potential to come up and and replace them directly. So, you know, it they really are set up very well, and that's you know, given the picks they've had, they haven't drafted all that well. Like I know yeah, that that I feels mean, weird to to say after you know they've spent first rounders on McCullers, Correa, and Bregman, but like they've. You know, this is not the Cubs just nailing four first rounders in a row. Mm-hmm. And that's so, but that I mean, that's the whole point of the, of the tank is to give yourself multiple, you know, multiple shots at that. And they've mitigated yeah. that by developing Altuve and Marwin and Keuchel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know that they're like so far out in front of the pack. You know, it's, it's a fun number, but, you know, I don't think that they're way out in front of the pack compared to the Dodgers or Cleveland or the Yankees, for instance. You know, other teams that have made the playoffs and were comparable to the Astros on the field, probably have um, stronger farm systems at this point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you could say the same things about the Cubs or about the Astros that we were saying about the Cubs last year, that they could, you know, fit the modern definition of dynasty, you know, go to mm-hmm. the LCS four times in five years, win two titles in five years, something yeah. like that. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's something that you could say about a lot of the teams in this year's playoff field. There there weren't a lot of teams that felt like they were kind of on the last gasp or running on fumes and making one more run at it. Pretty much all the teams that made it to the playoffs this year seemed yeah, like they were- I don't know were, if there's a single one that, no. that was on. The, I think you could see the end for the Nationals, but even then they're yeah, going to be back next year. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, not that next year's playoff field will look exactly like this year's you probably, don't think so? but I mean, it's certainly possible like they might- I'll be the favorites heading into next year, but some team will disappoint and some other team will surprise. And I'm sure that'll go be in the prop some sort of turnover. Next year. Yeah, probably. But, but yeah, I think it's important to, to note that the Astros as smart as they are and, and as well as they planned this whole process, just for something to result in a world series, just so much has to go right that, you know, in some cases you can credit to the team. In some cases you really can't. I think you could have said this about the Cubs too. The fact that they traded, for instance, for Jake Arrieta and and Hendricks 
you know, great moves, just stole them away from other organizations. But on the day they made those acquisitions, the Cubs wouldn't have said, yeah, these guys are going to be Cy Young winners or potential Cy Young winners in the future. They just thought there was some promise there. And I think you can say the same thing about the Astros. Yeah, they had Correa and McCullers and Bregman and all these guys on top picks, but top picks bust. And some of the Astros did, right? Of course, Mark Appel famously picked with Chris Bryant still on the board. And he ended up going to Philly as like a lesser part of a package for a closer or the Brady Aiken pick that, you know, ultimately worked out fine for the Astros because they just got Bregman instead. But the initial pick didn't work out. I mean, that happens with every single team. And obviously this regime gets most of the credit and should, but the previous regime deserves some of the praise here too, just for having had, you know, Springer and Altuve and Keiko. Those were guys that Jeff Luno inherited and maybe developed also, but the much maligned Ed Wade era produced some of That's the stars. That's how you win a this. title is you <laughs> yeah, hire um, Ed Wade as your general manager and right. lose for 10 years. And then in another 10 years, you win a title. Yeah, I mean, that's always almost always the case that when a team win, wins a World Series, there are still some remnants there from the last regime that probably exited in disgrace. So I think there's that. And, you know, I mean, as many smart moves as the Astros made, I doubt that if you had asked Jeff Lunau hours after he made the Marwin Gonzalez trade in 2011, he was not thinking Marwin Gonzalez is going to be a star for a World Series team. And he was not thinking Altuve was going to be a probable MVP or that Keiko was going to be a Cy Young winner. And, you know, maybe in some cases the team deserves credit for these guys exceeding expectations. But point is, you need to hit on a lot of the big gambles you make, but you also just need some outcomes that no one saw coming, including the team. And that's how you end up with a World Series win. So should we exit with one more word from our Project Runway clip and Heidi Klum to play out the last oh, eliminated you, team of the right. 2017 playoffs? All right, Heidi, take it away. You basically took yourself out of this competition. In this business, it's all about selling yourself. You admitted that you were the weakest of your team, and that gave us no choice. You're out. Can I go now? So let's talk briefly about the Dodgers before we run out of time. I think they're another team that's positioned pretty well to come back and roll it right back next year. I think they've got a decision to make on Darvish. You know, they've, they're they a little bit older than the Astros in some key spots, but they've been a fixture in the latter stages of the playoffs for the past uh, half decade. So, and, mm-hmm. you know, as long as they've got Kershaw and Seager and Turner, there's no reason to suspect that to change. Yeah, Bellinger, um, yeah. Barnes, yeah, so on and on. Well, you know, Bellinger's got to lay off that back foot <laughs> yes. breaking ball. This is I, honestly like this might be what screwed them is that they've got two young left-handed hitters who just haven't figured out how to how to lay off the back foot breaking ball because that's the one pitch McCullers had, and yeah. he just annihilated Seager, Peterson, and and Bellinger in Game Seven. Mm-hmm. And you know they get into the bullpen and Peacock's throwing a slider to the back foot and Morton's throwing a curveball to the back foot. Like that's. That's a weapon, and yeah. the Dodgers you know, Speaking just of had no answer. unpredictable outcomes. Sure, that, yeah. That the guys in a game seven, <laughs> it's going to be Brad Peacock and, and Charlie Morton is going to be on the mound throwing 98 when you win the World Series. That is not something that even Charlie Morton could have I foreseen. I still can't get order. Like, Brad Peacock was like the sixth most important player in the second – or the – no – 
how many Gio Gonzalez trades were there? Uh, <laughs> in the third Gio Gonzalez trade, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, like, talk about you can't predict baseball. But anyway, I wrote a long thing about, uh, you know, where the Dodgers went wrong and which has been perceived by in- internet wise guys with the with the the commentary oh they played the astros or they didn't get enough hits in game seven like okay but like they didn't go or like they're you can't do more things right from a team building perspective they went out and hired the superstar front office they went out mm-hmm. and spent more money than any other two teams not literally any other two teams put together but sometimes it feels like that and they got two stars through the draft they've done really well on second day picks. You know, Jock Peterson was an 11th rounder. Bellinger was a fourth rounder. Austin Barnes was a ninth rounder who took forever. You know, they've, they've got, you know, they got Alex Wood in a trade. They got Chris Taylor in a trade. They got uh, Justin Turner for nothing, you know, as a free agent, as an afterthought. They've done a really good job of development at the major league level or picking up on things like Justin Turner's swing, uh, swing change with the Mets or just luck, you know, not that it, at, at a certain point, it doesn't matter if you actually did it on purpose, like or just lucked into the guy. Like they they've been either lucky or good, and from a practical perspective, there's there's no real difference between the two. Looking back on it, they built, I think, clearly the best team in the major leagues this this year. Yep. And it took you know it took seven games and one of the other two best teams in the major leagues to just barely you know edge them out for the for the mm-hmm. title. So I you know I think this is frustrating. Honestly, I think this is a cool thing about baseball that it attracts rich owners, smart front office people and talented players. And, you know, rich, smart and talented people tend to be really arrogant. And it's amusing to see arrogant people get humbled by (laughs) just stupid shit every October. So, you know, and, you know, unfortunately for the Dodgers, they're just the latest example. But, you know, every team has a lot of money. Every team knows what they're doing in the front office. Every team has talented players. And the difference between the Dodgers and the Astros, while not trivial, is not so great that you can idiot proof a seven game series. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I I just don't think there's any more that the Dodgers can do. So on the one perspective, like, you know, from on one hand, you can they can look back on this and say, well, there's nothing that we can do. But also that's got to be incredibly frustrating for them. So, yep. you know, I as far as you know, whether they bring back Darvish, you know, I, there are pros and cons to, to both sides of it. You know, the, the same thing, you know, I don't know how they, they build out their rotation um, next year, apart from having nine starting pitchers when they really only need five, although they, you know, they needed all nine this year. So yeah, yeah, but they, they've got a good farm system coming up. You know, Wilmer font was great in the minors this year. Walker Bueller somehow they're doing the Yankees thing where they're just taking meat, you know, mediocre is not the word I was looking for. They're taking good college pitchers and just adding five miles an hour to their fastball. Like Walker Bueller was not this guy at Vanderbilt. And if they can keep developing pitchers that at that rate, then you know, the sky's the limit. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, they've won five consecutive division titles at this point and it's, it's just not that's wild. Yeah. That's, it's, it's really hard that get, to do. That gets obscured because the giants have won uh, right, the three World Series since 2010, but <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. that's that's no small achievement winning five no, titles in a row. Not at all, and it's hard to see how that run comes to an end. I mean, maybe their competition is stiffer than the Astros in that two other teams from the NL West made the postseason this year, so maybe they get pushed a little more next year than they did this season, but 
there's just no no way to look ahead really any number of years in the future and say this is the year when the Dodgers won't be the favorite in the NL West because they have young talent too and they have the means to spend. I mean, this team is still carrying so much dead money from the previous regime and, and just mistake contracts and the Dodgers means allow them to spend through that essentially, which is not a luxury that most teams have, but I think once you get past those contracts and, and they're off the books and some of them will be now, you know, and Carl Crawford and Adrian Gonzalez and, and all these guys, I mean, the, the Dodgers can use that money in more productive ways if they want to. And this regime has kind of continued to build the Dodgers the way that, you know, Farhan Zaidi ran the A's or Friedman ran the Rays and has not made a lot of regrettable commitments. I mean, they haven't really dipped into the free agent market all that much except to, say, bring back Jansen and bring back Turner. And they've been pretty responsible in holding on to their prospects and their young players and waiting for them to mature rather than just make that knee-jerk move at the deadline that at times they've had the opportunity to do. So they are well-positioned, and of course they have the resources that – only the Yankees maybe can match. And and so, yeah, they're going to continue to be back based on what we know now. But as we've seen every year since 1988, the Dodgers have not won a World Series. And that's what happens. So I think they are just the latest example of a great team that doesn't win. And it's not really a reflection on the way that team was built. It's just a reflection of the fact that they got outplayed over the course of a week or so. And there's not that much more to read into it. Yeah. It's a deeply unsatisfying answer when you're looking for, you know, looking for reasons, but it's the truth. Baseball is zero sum and everybody else is good too. Like that's, yep. it, it really distill, you know, it, distills the essence of the playoffs down to almost an absurd level. But, you know, the Dodgers are at the point where, like, you almost just want to sim ahead to next October 1st because they're probably going to be there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're probably going to face the same challenges they have for the past five years. So and, you know, I don't know that there's a better way to to sort of work around that. Like, you know, like even if they sort of accounted for for Kershaw, you know, having the one or two bad postseason starts because they went out and got, you know, they re-signed Hill. They went out and got Darvish. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what more reasonably they they could have done this year to to try to muscle through the playoffs. They did everything and it still wasn't enough. Yeah. So anyway, this series ends up as the ninth most exciting of all time. If you use that stat, I name checked earlier championship win probability added. I think if you look at the series surrounding it, that seems about right. And The way that it ended will, of course, influence how we remember it. But let's remember the good times, too. Let's remember game two and game five and all the the greatness and improbable craziness that we saw in this series. This was still trying to remember what day of the week it is. (laughs) Game two and game five. I know. Yeah, we are uh, a little, you know, we're feeling some World Series fatigue. We're feeling some Brandon Morrow usage rates of our own right now. (laughs) But uh Feeling the result of having touched a lot of public rail uh, handrails in, in, in several states over the past week. Yes, right. All right. So we'll wrap up there and we will, of course, be continuing to podcast all winter long. We'll be moving to once a week, you know, unless something major happens that 
requires us to do an emergency podcast, but I think we'll be sticking with Monday releases. So it's disappointing. Yeah, it's. it's I mean, that, that's going to cut my human contact in half. Only talking <laughs> you once a week. I know. Now that you're not traveling for the playoffs, uh, when are you going to see people you weren't married to? It's tough. But that's a great question. Yeah. Hopefully, never. That would be great <laughs> if I never had to leave my apartment again. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of heartwarming stories to get us through this winter, whether it's Carlos Correa's engagement or. The fact that Mark Teixeira's mom is evidently engaged to Brian McCann's dad, or is it the other way around? <laughs> I didn't see this. Like, I saw somebody whispering about this. I was like, how has this not been dominating headlines? And <laughs> apparently there's a, a rumor that uh, Justin Verlander and his fiance Kate Upton, are going to tie the knot shortly after the World Series. Love is in the air, man. It really is. Yeah. I want to know more about this uh, McCann's mom and Teixeira's dad relationships to the, the marriage of parents of disappointing veteran free agent Yankees somehow came together and bonded over their son's struggles in the Bronx yeah, or I'm something. Sh- I don't know. I'm sure that's how they're, you know. <laughs> I want to know more. That's all I'm saying. Let's not, let's not have that little tidbit buried just because it surfaced during game seven of the world series. So, okay, let's, yeah, let's <laughs> dig into this and revisit it for, for Monday's pod. Yeah. So I don't know what we'll do on Monday. Maybe we'll do some sort of setting up the off season storylines kind of pod. It's, it's always sort of depressing to go from world series to like, very insignificant transactions that, you know, you go to MLB trade rumors and it's like so-and-so is a free agent now. The or... Yankees just did something. I read it 10 minutes ago. I don't even remember what it was. It was so yeah, insignificant. It's like... But it's like, <laughs> it's the off season. It's the you know, warm yeah. up that hot stove. Yeah. Teams are exercising options and just like all of these very insignificant things that like, you know, we'll all talk about, but it just pales in comparison to what we were just watching. Anyway, there's always the Shohei Otani intrigued to get us through this winter one way or another. So Gerard Dyson's a free agent. Oh, this, this just came across right. the, the wire. The adrenaline is flowing now. Unfortunately, we have to stop. So we'll be back on Monday. You have been listening to the Ringer MLB show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Thanks for sticking with us all season, everyone. Things change. The weather changes. Who's winning the World Series changes. Your mood definitely changes. So why lock yourself into plans that might change? With Hotel Tonight, you don't have to, because you'll get incredible deals on awesome hotels even at the last minute. Booking on Hotel Tonight gives you the freedom and flexibility to play things by ear while knowing you'll score a great price and a great place to stay. Or if you're the type who likes to plan ahead and have things locked down, you can actually book a room in advance with Hotel Tonight, up to seven days in advance everywhere, and up to 100 days in advance in certain major cities. So whether you need a room for tonight, tomorrow, or beyond, you definitely want to download the Hotel Tonight app. Download the Hotel Tonight app to find seriously amazing deals now.